You're a failure. And that's okay. Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Alicia. And, and we're, we're failures, failures too. too. We take a walk back through people's failures and relive the mistakes they made so we all can have more clarity on how to be a better human. Welcome to the 2020 Perspective, where we make failure fun. What would you do if failure weren't an option? Would you be a tidbit riskier? Brendan was trucking along in a good corporate job when his fear of future failure compelled him to make a change. Concerned that he wasn't taking full advantage of his training as a PhD psychologist, Brendan started taking bigger risks and eventually left the corporate grind to start his own business. On this episode, Brendan Newman walks us through his story of using creativity to take risks and mitigate the effects of a future failure. And he knows a thing or two about creativity and failure. In our conversation, we'll discuss the opportunity cost of not taking a risk, how to be creative in any role, and projecting yourself into the future to detect a potential failure. Welcome to the 2020 Perspective. Today's episode, we have Brendan Newman, who's with us, a different Newman. Uh, so welcome to the show, Brendan. Thanks, Alicia and Dan. Appreciate you having me. I've spent a lot of time um, listening to your show and talking to you in particular, Alicia, around what, what failure looks like. In listening to, to your other guests, it's I always thought it was interesting, like, failure for them was defined in like whether or not they got a certain thing done or made something happen um, at like a particular point in time so like they had a goal that they either did or, or didn't accomplish you know um, and so like that that stuck with me just in itself for a while it's like man I guess it's not really failure if you don't set a really precise you know set of conditions that you are supposed to meet if I sandbag it and say like, well, I'll just try this thing without setting any really precise um, expectations for myself, I can't really fail. I don't necessarily feel like a failure right now, uh, but I also like distinctly don't feel like a success. That really had me thinking like, maybe I'm doing the whole goal setting thing wrong or I'm not being hard enough on setting those crisp goals. You know what they say, if you're not failing, then you're not trying hard enough. I, yeah, and at the same time, like, but I feel like I'm trying super hard. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what if you are? Yeah, right. So you know, the more I thought about it, and you know, I don't have like a, a major, I think, like life event like a lot of your your guests have had. But um, a big turning point for me was the just the process of starting my own business and trying to be, you know, self-employed basically. And when I look back and I think about the decisions that I made that, you know, led me to do what I'm doing now, a lot of it was actually in response to the fear of failure. The, like literally the first day I remember um, working at United, uh, I was like, man, there's a lot of there's a lot of folks here who it doesn't seem like they're worried they're going to lose their job tomorrow. And this was 20, like 2010, 2011. Um, in, in my previous role, I was in a consulting function where, you know, if you mess something up and you send something wrong to your client, there's like instant ramifications of that. Like you could, you know, the, the, your employer loses that client and then you might lose your job. Like there's always that kind of danger, like, well, you better not screw up, otherwise you'll feel it. 
And I, I didn't feel that a lot in uh, like a corporate HR sort of role. Um, so that stood out to me like right away. Like there's just not a, you know, when we talk about risk, there wasn't like a huge fear of failure, I thought, from a lot of people around me. And I wanted to, you know, not have that, what seemed like complacency. So, sometimes. okay. Can we talk more about how, and I don't want to assume anything and like lead down one path, but I, I think that there's got to be some more really juicy correlations between levels of creativity or just some creativity in general and, and failure, how you view it, your perspective on it, the level of creativity that we have inside of us. So can you help us understand more about what that looks like and can we be more creative? Can you, is that innate or is it learned and how does that play into failure? So a couple things. One, I know, I know with the benefit of hindsight, why, uh, some folks might've seen like they were complacent or not willing to kind of stick their necks out because a lot of these people, even at that time, had been with the airline industry long enough to see the sort of drama that we're seeing today, which is like, it's a really volatile industry. So you don't necessarily want to take a bunch of risks. Um, you don't want to you know, make it more risky than it already is. Right. Yeah. So like a lot of people don't want to stick their neck out. And I totally get that now. My like 25 year old or 26 year old self didn't get it then. Um, but, you know, it makes a lot of sense now to your, I think to your bigger question though, Alicia, when I was, um, when I started to study creativity as a grad student, you know, I'm, I'm reading all this literature about how creative people are different uh, amongst themselves and from other people. And like a super uh, common distinction that's made is like, okay, we're going to compare different domains of creativity. We're going to compare artists versus scientists. Like those two groups are used a bunch. Um, and it eventually dawned on me like, you know, there's a lot of other jobs out there. Like, obviously there's a bias. Like when you think about what creative work means, you think of like, oh, I'm a painter or a poet or, you know, some mad scientist or things like that. But like, that's not most jobs. So what I ended up really studying was, can we look at how creative thinking shows up in work, like in a lot of jobs? Because I feel like it's in most jobs, right? Um, not just these like prototypes of creative thinking. And it connected to my work at the airline because at the time I was doing HR analytics stuff, which is, you know, just making pretty charts and graphs about people. Um, and it, it like, it kind of, it was a drag sometimes. So I'm like, I really wish that this was more creative. Like, can I even be self-expressive if I'm making a PowerPoint? And you add an animation and then it's great, right? It slides in from the left and then it's suddenly exciting. Just add a star swipe and call it a day. Yeah. So like that, that whole idea of, uh, you know, can we, can we be creative in any job uh, was what was kind of the seed of a lot of what I ended up kind of building my career around. And you know, the, sh the, the short answer is like almost every single job requires creative thinking. And there's, you know, there's data around this. Like there are people who study work, who study the, the skills and abilities that are required for different jobs. And in the U.S. economy, like 70% of all jobs at least require a moderate amount of creative thinking for just baseline performance. There's only jobs like, um, you know, really menial labor jobs that don't include creative thinking as a core requirement for the, uh, for success. I'm now like, say three or four years into my, my job there, I've, I've, I've moved on to doing like leadership development stuff. 
and I'm, I'm getting kind of antsy because I'm like still thinking like I want to go do something else and do something consulting related. And I also, uh, in addition to not loving having a manager, I don't really like being in meetings that much. Um, and I would get frustrated being like, gosh, we're going to spend the next two hours like whiteboarding something. And meanwhile, like this company makes money by flying people on airplanes. Like I was, I would get frustrated that like there was a, a lot of steps between how I was spending my time and how like the business actually made money, which was fly, mm-hmm. flying people. Um, so I had, I basically ended up in a situation where I had a, a different job opportunity to do something in consulting again, or, uh, I could, you know, stick around and find other things, um, at the airline. And one of my friends convinced me to talk to this other leader that I really respected before I left. Like I was pretty close to giving notice and she said, go talk to Kelly. Uh, Kelly was the, the head of, of talent acquisition at the time. And I, I popped my head in her door and I was like, hey, do you have like five minutes completely unannounced? And I basically told her everything. I was like, hey, I, I'm about to quit and I just kind of wanted to get your take on it because I think you have uh, you know, a lot of insight, but you're also not my boss. So like there's some distance. Like a there, mentor so. relationship. Mm-hmm. Totally, yeah, absolutely. Um, and she, long story short, she convinced me to stay and convinced me to stick around just a little bit longer because there was going to be an opening on her team that wasn't um, wasn't available yet. But she's like, "There's going to be there's going to be some movement and there's going to be a job, and I'd like you to apply for it." Um, so I was like, "Wow, that was a close call. I almost just quit, and um, now I'm going to stick around." And I, I I went from being like really ambivalent to really 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 wanting that job and really wanting to work uh, on her team and, and to work with her. And in that process. I was hesitant because the like the role that I would have interviewed for I saw as being a really kind of politically challenging role where they basically had to set the policy and the, the processes for how the recruiters at the company did their job um, and the the guy who was in that role at the time like it just seemed like he took a lot of guff from people and I didn't mm-hmm. didn't know that I wanted to be in that spot and he was like literally the third person in my career who said, look, I know you want to be a psychologist. This is an opportunity for you to be a leader. Like, take it or leave it. Um, you know, people are going <laughs> to, the words he used, like, or people are going to bark at you no matter what you do. Uh, you might as well try and grow a little bit. So wait, can we, can we zoom in a little bit on, on this, this, this series of events? Because yeah. I'm, I'm super dialed in. You, you had this, this, this conversation with a friend who yeah. said, yeah, you should just go talk to, you should go talk to Kelly because, you know, it might be worth. And it was, that was a small risk because you didn't know kind of what that conversation was going to result in. You, you failed to quit, basically. Um, and then she's like, hey, so there's this other opportunity. It's got higher stakes. It's a bigger risk. Yep. What was mm-hmm. going through your head? Like, how did you, how did you square this? Because you're about to leave a company and now you're like, I'm about to jump for this job that is harder than the one I have right now. Correct. Uh, yeah. No. You you you're nailing it <laughs> in describing what was going through my head, and it, like for more for more context, this was like a, I think within a year or two of me finishing grad school. So like I had the, you know, the the title and everything, and I was like super into calling myself a psychologist, um, and this didn't feel like that like this job didn't require that skill set a PhD right yeah um, and so like that was kind of holding me back a little bit too but 
you know, the idea that there would be a lot of autonomy in shaping like the direction of where this team was growing. And it was, it was a significant amount of responsibility and just enough, enough good risks, I guess, to like, know that like, all right, if I, if I make it through some of these risks and make good decisions, I'm for sure going to learn a thing or two. Um, and to, you know, have that identity as someone who was able to lead and influence whereas before I was doing mostly like individual contributor type stuff in my, my prior role. It was the same, it was kind of the same thing. Like when I got into that role, I'm like, all right, you know, recruiting is very much, um, it's a process driven thing. Like there's, there's some things that are, um, you just can't be creative with. It's like throughput, it's managing numbers and processes and like trying to make things more efficient and stuff like that. So that was kind of, parts of that were kind of boring, but I was like always in search for how do I make this my own thing? And like one, one angle on that was, you know, we did these like every other week uh, webinars for the, the global recruiting team. And like I quickly t t took to that as my ability, my opportunity to like make that my own. So everyone had to put up with all my bad jokes and my clever um, PowerPoint art and all those sorts of things. And like, I got a ton of positive feedback on it. Like people loved that it was not, um, not as boring as it could have been. You know, it wasn't like your, your typical, like we're just gonna check in corporate WebEx sort of thing. Like I tried to make it at least a little bit engaging. Um, you, you slightly um, exceeded like their expectations. Yeah, right, the bar was not super high probably. Again, the there was like a big risk there. Like I, I did that for a few years and every single time, like I never, I never was n not scared to do it. Like every single time I would be literally sweating like crazy and like have butterflies in my stomach. Um, Cause it was an audience of like, I don't know, like 50 to 60 people usually. Just enough to make me nervous. Um, but like every every time I did that, I felt like, all right, I'm, I have, the risk is they're gonna think I'm an idiot. They think that I'm, you know, that, that leader who doesn't know what he's talking about. But there was the potential value of them getting the idea that I was trying to advocate for them or trying to make their jobs better or make the airline better, that sort of thing. And like that, that whole challenge, that risk and reward, and I guess the fear of failure um, was really motivating. Like to, to know like I was kind of in the spotlight and I was trying not to screw up and I definitely screwed up sometimes, but that, that, um, that was kind of the, the edge that I was missing in other roles where like, you know, there's no real consequence if I screw this up. It's just a spreadsheet or it's just a PowerPoint or whatever. This felt a little bit more um, like it had consequences to people's jobs if I did it wrong. That is super, that, that, so that put the, the whole picture into, into bigger context because it sounds like you were failing to find opportunities to fail, to meaningfully fail before you moved into this new role. And then you were put in a place where you could fail but that almost pushed you to succeed. It put you in a position where, you know, the things were on the line, the stakes were higher, um, and it it gave you more meaning. It gave you more purpose. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I, I don't want to like aggrandize something that's not that that big of a deal. It was still a a weird kind of mid level manager corporate job. But to your point, like prior to that, uh, you know. I, there was fewer people to disappoint, I guess. It really kind of boiled down to like, there was a, now there was uh, several dozen people who could be disappointed in me and the work that I was doing. And that was kind of the, 
the edge that I needed to to feel that, you know, kind of to light the fire, I guess. Let's take a quick break. Do you want to bring the 2020 perspective insights to your team, community group, or company? This season, we're opening the door to talk with you about your failures and engage in a dialogue with the community that matters to you. For this season only, we're running a special offer called the Failure to Findings Talk, where we can help you learn from failure and build a culture around being a successful failure. Reach out to us at hello at the2020perspective.com and let us know you're interested in the Failure to Findings Talk. Again, that's hello at the2020perspective.com. Let's fail out loud together. And now back to the failure. That kind of leads up to the, I think the big dramatic moment that like really solidified my my plan to leave. I had, I had told Kelly and, and others like for years like you know this is just the thing I'm gonna do for a while. And I and I don't know if you know anyone who works like in the travel industry. It's it's the sort of thing. It's very because it's so seniority based. Like the longer you're there, the harder it is to leave. Like your benefits get better every year the free travel gets easier the longer you're there. So like there's a there's a certain point at around like eight years of tenure where it's too good to walk away from. Like the just the benefits are too good. And so like I was I was anticipating being in that spot where like I don't wanna I don't wanna be a lifer, basically. Like I don't wanna I don't I don't wanna not have the choice to walk away anymore. And so I'd been kinda talking that talk for a while, but I think a lot of people didn't take me seriously. And then um there was a moment where a, a senior leader to, to, that we reported into, um, he lost his job in kind of a surprising and unceremonious way. And um, it was really disruptive. And uh, when that happened, another leader tried to do the right thing and kind of rally people uh, and have some like informal, you know, uh, break room conversation just to say, here's what's going on. Let me know if you have questions, that sort of thing. And um, this leader who did that, um, you know, in, in front of me and a few other employees, he had said something like, you know, I'm, I'm having this conversation with you, just not planned, really improvising here, but I want to address anything so there's no like water cooler gossip, that sort of thing. Like just put it out there, let's be honest and just clear the air and, you know, I want this to be good. So he had like really good intentions and I uh, admired his his willingness to be transparent about it. And folks were starting to ask questions like, well, was this, was this departure related to other things going on in the company, like, you know, a reorganization or something like that, of which there had been like a lot of rumors. It was, it was a lot of people felt something like that was coming. Politics. Yeah. Right. Uh, and uh, this guy basically said, I don't know what you're talking about. And it was obvious to everybody that that was not an authentic answer. Um, and I kind of, I, I called him out on it. I, I basically said, come on, like you just said, you don't want there to be any gossip or um, you know, rumors or things like that. And you clearly didn't answer that question honestly. And you know, he said, uh, well, I'm, I just can't talk about it. Oh, double, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> so he was extremely upset with me. Um, and immediately after that, uh, you know, I had to have a conversation in his office where he 
you know, explained that I disrespected him and uh, it was not tactful. And he's he is <laughs> he is correct in that I did not use tact that maybe the person I am today would have used. Uh, I was young and stupid, I guess. But at the same time, in that moment, I I kind of did the math. I'm like, a lot of the people that I'm standing next to, they've got a lot more to lose than I do. Like these are pe- these are the lifers. These are the folks that have been with the company for 15 or 20 years or whatever. They're not going to do something stupid like you know challenge this guy uh, when they can just go back to work. And meanwhile, I'm like, I'm kind of one foot out the door anyway. So what the heck? Burn it. Burn Let's it take down. Take a little risk. Yeah. Right? Let's just yeah, uh, see where we go with this. Uh, I was pretty sure I was going to get fired. He was really mad at me. And, you know, like, like I said, he was trying to do the right thing. He maybe, he maybe painted himself into a corner um, by trying to, on the one hand, be transparent, but on the other hand, you know, toe the company line of like, we're not talking about this thing yet. So maybe not fair of me, but uh, that, that was literally the same day that I like, submitted all the paperwork with the state to start my LLC. I'm like, well, cause I'm going to get fired tomorrow. I better get this consulting thing stood up. Escalate all this uh, other paperwork. Right, right. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like, it, it's what I needed to get moving. And, you know, him and I, like, we got over it. Like, he, uh, he's a good guy, and I like him a lot. And uh, we worked together after that. But that was a kind of an important dramatic moment where I realized, like, I didn't have anything to, like, the risk was relatively low for me. You know, I didn't, what's the worst that could have happened? They would have fired me and then I would have had to do what I ended up wanting to do anyway. Well, it's interesting you say that because that risk for some people, I guess it, you know, it's kind of like a state of mind and where you are. Like for some people that could have been a huge failure, you know, but I think it's just obviously your perspective and the way that you're looking at it. When you were talking about being a lifer at the airline company, and how you didn't want to do that. You wanted to to make the move to start your own company. And so it's almost like you were kind of like projecting yourself into the future to consider what failure looked like down the line, which would have been for you not starting the company. It would have been fine for other people, but failure to you in the future would be not taking this risk to start your own thing. You know, we were, I was writing in my notebook a while ago about, um, like, if you, if these failures happen along the way in your life and you take, take messages and information and, and learnings from it so that in the future you try to not, you know, have ex- experience the same, like, setbacks or whatever. But one of those things that you can do is to project yourself into the future and think about, you know, best case, worst case, what would that look like? And how might I get there? And then backtrack from there. That's what it sounds like that you you did is you looked in the future and said, maybe subconsciously that a failure for you would be not taking the risk to start this company and staying exactly where I am today. And so by knowing that you took the steps necessary like this risk you did with, you know, talking to this leader and, you know, saying something that maybe you wouldn't have said otherwise, um, because you were already kind of thinking of how can I feel more validated to get out and make the, make this move. I'm totally just projecting all this stuff onto you. So stop me if I'm just making up your own story. No, you're, you're correct. Um, you're not reaching too far with this. 
and it's 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 what I meant earlier when I said like a lot of my decisions have been made by my fear of future failure, and right. at that time and still now I think um, failure to me would be a situation like a career situation where I don't feel qualified calling myself a psychologist or doing psychology things. So when I say I didn't want to be a lifer, like that's not to denigrate people who've built their career at the airline. Like there's no, that's admirable. There's nothing wrong with that. But I knew that like psychologists don't work at airlines typically. Um, and so like, that's the choice that I needed to be making. I was like, do I, how badly do I want this? Do I want to be an airline HR leader type, or do I want to do this other thing that was really core to my identity and not not pursuing that thing that I identified with would have been failure. And so, yeah, as, as you describe it, you know, projecting, I would think, okay, if, you know, at the time I'm, I was like in my early 30s, if I imagine being 50 and I'm still working at the airline and I never took this chance and I feel not legitimate calling myself a psychologist, that sounds like failure. And I want to not do that. <laughs> I want to not be in that situation. So yeah, that's, I think you, you are correct. You're not, you're not projecting it too much. Um, and that's why I was able to be a little bit cavalier in that moment, because it's like, well, in the best case scenario, I'm going to stand up for my coworkers and give voice to, you know, I know a lot of them were thinking what I was thinking, um, and weren't buying this guy's line. That's the best case scenario. The worst case is he gets super mad at me and fires me. And then I've got to go do this thing that I said I was going to do anyway. Yeah, and you know, I, I just want to, I want to take a hot second and congratulate past you for making the decision that you did because it really grinds my gears when, you know, a company and an individual who is entrusted with upholding the culture of a company does things that de degrade and erode the culture and not answering questions, not being open and transparent, not educating and empowering people like, that culture kills me. And, you know, it gives me, gives me hope because my business is focused on helping small organizations build the positive culture so they don't become, you know, an airline company um, or, or whatever. Um, but I'm glad that, you know, you stood up and spoke up because that is the other piece of what builds a positive culture is the employees choosing to not accept the status quo and not accept something that they see as wrong. So I applaud you from here and I'm glad you took that risk because I think the failure of not doing anything would have been tremendous. And you would have watched your years slip away as you become a lifer in this, you know, bureaucratic political mishmash and you wouldn't have been able to find a, a better and more meaningful purpose. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Um, that said, I, I feel compelled to say like, it's really easy to not be inside a company like that and to describe, you know, like these big corporate monoliths as not a collection of people. Um, so, you know, this guy was in a tough spot. Other, other poor decisions happened that day and the days before it that put him in a situation where he had to try and balance being authentic and also, you know, do what was expected of him by his own boss. Um, so totally get what you're saying. My gears are ground also <laughs> by that. Uh, 
but I like it's kind of what I was saying before. Like I have a lot more empathy for what we call politics now because like everyone's just trying to do the best they can. You know, there are for sure there's some like shady characters out there who are more self-interested than that. Um, that's a, a tiny minority, I think, and it's really easy to um, to kind of misread that sort of stuff as just like corporate indifference and uh, dishonesty. I don't. I'm I'm actually a little bit more optimistic about things especially in hindsight than I, than I was then. There was a conference. Um, it was actually uh, the uh, Elliot Maisie Learning Conference where I originally met Alicia. Um, but it was a couple years later, and um, I forgot his name, but he used to run um, culture programming at Facebook. Mm-hmm. And he talked a lot about how those little decisions end up cascading and cascading, and they end up eroding culture. And it's, it's always the little things. It's the little things about like, oh, we need to have the meeting before the meeting where we talk about how we're going to approach the meeting. And then and afterwards then, we're going to talk about, can you believe what that guy said in that meeting? Yeah. And then the oh, meeting yeah. after the meeting. And then the private conversation that then becomes, you know, characterizing and demonizing people. It's like all these little choices and they, they accumulate and become a snowball that just keep running downhill until they, you know, hit you. No, you're you're not wrong. I just I want to make the point like I don't I don't I don't want your listeners to think this guy came on their show and just dumped all over United Airlines and big companies generally like that was not, that's not my intent uh, at all. But I appreciate your what, your compliment and and your point of view on culture because I agree culture is it's the sum of a bunch of tiny little decisions and behaviors that that add up. So I know we're we're running a little bit out of time, but I'm curious if you have any kind of like final thoughts or you know, observations or, or, or messages to the world that you'd like to stick into a bottle and, and send out through the podcast airwaves? <laughs> um, well, I think a few things are, you know, like I was saying before, almost every job has the potential to be creative, as do most people. And I think that's like a really a sad thing that a lot of people assume that it's like a binary thing where either you have it or you don't. It's a very kind of fixed mindset sort of thing. But almost everyone is creative or doing creative things um, and they're not giving themselves enough credit for it. And I think a lot of it uh, has to do with these, you know, evaluations of what's at stake, like what's the risk we're going to take. And we make those calculations on autopilot a lot. Um, And I think if we're a little bit more deliberate and kind of asking ourselves like, well, what do I have to gain versus what do I have to lose? we might be willing to take greater risks sometime. You know, I don't know, like about a week or two after I knew that I was going to be recording this with you all, I saw this thing on Instagram that was like, what would you do if you could not fail? And I read that and like I immediately thought, oh, build a business, like what I'm doing right now, try and be self-employed. But then like a second later, uh, I had this thought like, well, that doesn't make sense. It was it was kind of like, you know, when you spell something wrong and you don't know how you spelt it wrong, but you know it's not right and you just keep staring at it. It was kind of that feeling, like I just knew it wasn't quite right. Um, and that's why I realized like you can't really build a business without the possibility of failure. Like without that fear uh, and without that motivation, you're just kind of, you know, messing around. It's not really doing something that matters. So it just, it felt like, uh, kind of a, a throwaway answer, but it was important that I felt like, well, immediately that's what I wanted to do. Like that was the first thing I thought of 
Um, so just kind of gratification or, or I guess validation that um, you know, I'm doing the thing that I want to do and I wouldn't be able to do it if I didn't have that fear of failure. I, I do think that, I think it's good to explain that because when we traditionally think of creativity, people's brains go to an artist, a, you know, a, someone who's performing, a singer, a musician, Dan. Um, but we don't think about how we still can be or should be creative in our in our, you know, very dry corporate world too, or business world, you know, like there's so much creative thinking to be had. And so what I would like to know about is how does the, you know, how we use creativity, how does it maybe um, play or what's the correlation with how it plays with, um, you know, our risk-taking or the way that we look at failure, even small to large failures. Yeah. I mean, so the, like, it helps, I think, to start with just the most basic definition of what creativity is. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, being a musician or an artist. Obviously, it, it includes that, but it, like, literally, it, just creativity is defined by things that are unique and appropriate for the context. So like day to day, there's probably already been a time today uh, where all three of us were presented with some sort of a problem where we had to make a decision or do something that we literally hadn't done before, no matter how significant or insignificant. And whatever we thought of was appropriate for that situation. So, you know, it it feels like small stakes, but we do this like literally every day. We, We make a choice to try to do something and we might not think through all the calculus of it, but where there's risk involved and saying like, well, I might feel like a jerk or they might think my ideas are stupid. Um, we, we like think through that super fast, but we do think through it and we're, we're coming up with something that's unique and appropriate for the situation every time we do it. And that's, that's truly like the, at the core of what creative thinking is. It doesn't have to be artistic necessarily, but it's appropriate and different than something we've done before. And so I, I'm consciously and often asking myself, like, what's at stake for me trying to do this today? What do I get out of being truly independent? What's it costing me? Um, you know, what's the worst that could happen? And what's the best that could happen out of that? And I, I have to kind of ask that a lot to keep motivated. Talk about uh, let's talk about Brendan. Brendan, basal consulting, IO psychologist, like me, but he has his PhD. <laughs> um, Someday, Alicia. So, maybe. Okay. Um, I. I <laughs> that was a dodge. <laughs> for sure. Definitely not doing that anymore. The thought, the PhD thought, has passed. Um, but Brendan like rocked it, and I, I liked our conversation with Brendan a lot. Um. The thing that stuck out to me is obviously, you know, I think it's really cool that he does creativity in work and how his analogy with what creativity looks like um, with non quote unquote, like creative, the stereotype of like a creative job, like an artist or a musician Mm -hmm. or whatever. But like, how do we all be a little bit more creative in our roles if we're professionals like in business or we literally stare at Excel sheets all day, how do you make things creative? And um, I listened to a Ted talk 
it was a while ago, I wrote a blog post about it, about how like right now in this world of being constantly connected to phones and internet and computers and screens, maybe even more now with COVID, um, how there is a creativity crisis in our world. Because when we are not looking at a screen or, you know, you check out by watching TV and you literally just sit there on your phone and like look at emails or whatever, we are not allowing Mm -hmm. ourselves that downtime to be bored. And that is the time when we connect neurons in our brains to be creative. Anyway, I won't go down on a tangent, but, um, I liked how he, how he works on that and, and brings it kind of to the forefront. And uh, I'm going to stop there cause I can keep going. Um, I mean, I can yeah. keep going too. Okay. I have, I have two big thoughts that I want to talk about, uh, from that interview. So one was an offhand comment of what, of how he defined creativity, unique one and appropriate to the context too. And you know, it made me think about how people look at failure and look at creativity. And I think people are scared to bring in the unique things because they don't know if it's going to be appropriate to the context or not. And having confidence to be like, hey, I've got this crazy idea. I know no one's ever done blankety blank here, but I think it could achieve our objective really well. And that confidence and that fearlessness of saying, here's something, you know, oddball and different let's apply it to this context and see if it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. And that's creativity. And I think that is almost a, it unlocks a lot of opportunity because you could be interested in anything. As long as you're interested in something and you can find a way to connect it to the context, you're being deeply creative. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea that failure is just one, one way station along that journey of you bring in something unique, you try something and maybe it didn't work. Maybe it wasn't appropriate to the context. Uh, but you just find something new and that's e- it's easy. And he also talks about this element of risk in creativity and trying and you know trying new things. There's a, always a little bit of risk. And when he used the example of when he became that leader of the that you know talent acquisition team and mm-hmm. for every global meeting he did something kind of funny with uh, the PowerPoint or he brought in some cheesy jokes or whatever. And he said every single time he tried something, he was consistent. He said um, mm-hmm. he was always nervous about it, like it would fall flat or whatever, but he still took the risk. And mm. and it was always like, I'm glad that I did it. He was never regretful. It made me think of when I was preparing for, for when I um, emceed the TEDx event a year and a half ago. And um, I remember preparing for it in my apartment. I can visualize it right now, sitting at my table, staring at my computer screen. And I was like, oh, God, if they just call me and say we have gotten in over our head, we cannot do this event. I'd be like, oh, this is great. I don't have to prepare anymore. I don't have to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I need an out. I need an out. Like, I don't even want to do it because I was scared of failing. But um, and then if, you know, the cord was ripped and we didn't have to do it anymore, then it was like my out to not fail. And anyway, it ended up being such a huge success for me professionally and personally that I decided to go all in and take those risks to try something really out of, you know, the norm. And it ended up being and use my creative, you know, juices and it ended up being fine it was great and and I felt so good about you know taking that risk to to 
have a successful outcome. I mean, this is this was the second thing. This was the second thing that I want to talk about from that <laughs> that conversation is the stakes, like the risk and the stakes. And it's this like contradictory belief that you want to chase the things that scare you because typically you want to run away from the things that scare you. And when you take well-measured, reasonable risks, you get this reward, which is so much more meaningful than taking the easy path. Mm-hmm. And failure is part of that scariness. And if it's big and it's scary, that's that's a sign that it's a good thing. Like there's that's where you're going to learn the most. That's where you're going to grow the most. And you know, as long as you're not taking foolhardy risks and you're not thinking of all the consequences and preparing for the possible negative outcomes, as long as you do your homework, the risk is good and the the scariness is good. And, you know, that's what I feel like starting this business of mine. I knew that I was going to be engaging on a pursuit of risk and failure. And that's the way I described it to myself is I needed to find something in life that I could be a spectacular failure at. And I, I, that's why I wanted, yeah, I've been fucking nailing it, man. <laughs> I have been failing so hard and I have learned so much and I've grown a lot and I've done so many cool things that I would have not done before. I met the most fascinating people. I am happy for the choice, even if it still terrifies me every night when I lay in bed and stare at the ceiling and think about my, you know, next thing I need to do. Yeah. It's still, it's still a delicious life. And I'm really happy that I made those choices. Thanks to No BS Brass Band for the Bang and Show music. Check them out at nobsbrass.com. And subscribe on your favorite podcast player or follow us on Facebook to get the newest failures delivered right to your ears. And may your failures be spectacular. <laughs>